Well, this morning we are going to wrestle with something that we all wrestle with, which is how to deal with anger in our life. And we're going to try and take on one of the most misunderstood and difficult concepts in the Bible. What does it mean that the Bible actually does say an eye for an eye? That's in there? That's in there. And Jesus shows up and says, you've heard it said eye for an eye, but I tell you, turn the other cheek. Does that mean the Old Testament was wrong? The Old Testament was endorsing uh, vengeance, endorsing wrongdoing, and Jesus had to show up and say, sorry about my dad, he got it wrong? And why is, in the middle of this incredible journey we've been on, speaking about the different Levitical feasts and, and the calling to celebrate and the calling to rest, there's suddenly a, an abrupt change for one chapter where we get the chapter we're looking at today that deals with God's presence in our life. Commentators believe that one of the reasons, as we've studied Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, Pentecost, Trumpets, Atonement, and last week we spoke about the Feast of Tabernacle, where God tabernacles himself with us, the reason this chapter is here is because the idea of God presencing himself with us in tabernacles brings up a whole bunch of habits you and I need to develop to remind ourselves that God is present with us. So this chapter really is summarized with four different ways we remember that God is with us. Coming out of the Feast of Tabernacles in setting up the ultimate liberty, the ultimate freedom, which will be the Feast of Jubilee. And in there is going to be some hints as to how you and I can wrestle with anger in our life because we all get angry. Some of us are active anger, some of us are passive-aggressive anger. But God's presence and a reminder of God's presence is one of the secrets to handling anger in a productive way. So I hope this chapter will, will do for you what it's done for me. It, rem, it reminds me to remember to hold my temper when I remember who God is and what He's done. We can remember to hold our temper when we remember who God is. Judge, merciful, peaceful, slow to anger, and what He's done for us. So four reminders. The first reminder is that of lamps. Lamps, And he really comes back to emphasizing the lamp. And again, the lamp is the menorah. It doesn't have candles. It's made completely out of gold. It has seven branches. It was designed based on Exodus uh, description to look like tree leaves. So there were buds put into the gold and in, 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 in construction of it. So it was made to look like a tree. It didn't burn candle. It burned olive oil. And here's where he gives the details. The Lord spoke to Moses, <clears throat> pardon me, saying, Command the children of Israel, so everybody, it's a, it's a community thing, that they bring, everybody brings to you pure oil, the best oil. What kind of oil? Olive oil, pressed olive oil for the light that goes in the, in the holy place. And they are to make the lamps, he mentions lamps many times, burn continually. This was a daily, continual reminder of God's presence. And God's saying they needed a daily reminder that God was with them. And the symbolism here was very, very clear on that. It was to look like a tree to remind them of the paradise of Eden when God was with us fully on earth. The fire was to remind them of the pillar of fire, God's presence. The smoke that came up from it, the pillar of smoke. This was a tangible daily reminder that God is with us. 
And all of the community was to come together to bring that pure oil, that pressed olive oil. And Aaron shall be in charge of it. He's one of the priests. It will happen continually, a daily reminder. It shall be a statute forever for your generations that we need daily reminders. And he shall be in charge of the lamps on the pure gold lampstand, the menorah, for the Lord continually. And here we see this daily need for us to be reminded of God's presence. Why? If I forget God is present with me, I get overwhelmed with fear as I face circumstances. And the greatest thing I need when I face fear is a reminder of God's presence. When I forget God is powerful, I begin to worry and think I need to be powerful and control things like people and circumstances. When I forget God is the judge, I begin to need to be the judge. And I give myself freedom to be angry at other people because I'm keeping the books and I'm keeping account. If I don't have a, a just God, I can hand over the wrongdoing that's been done to me. Unforgiveness, bitterness, hatred, wrath all begin to well up within me. So we need a daily reminder that God is with us. And you notice he says, command all the children of Israel to be part of this. One of the reasons why we gather together weekly to study the Bible And I hope you have some personal devotions connecting with God through prayer, through Bible study. Daily, it's to remind us of who God is. Oh, he was slow to anger toward me. I need to be slow to anger toward others. He was merciful toward me. I don't want to show mercy here, but I'm going to be merciful toward them. We need those daily reminders. And we need community. Part of one of the reasons we, we have small groups that we launch both in this time of year in September and January, we have sign-ups going on right now for many of our groups, is because we know it takes a community. You need somebody to say, hey, hey let me help you out here. I noticed the way you talked to your wife, or I noticed the way you talked about your husband there. There might be some unresolved anger you need to deal with. And we need the community and we need the Bible to help us deal with this. And both are here. Speak to everybody to bring that olive oil. And be reminded of God's presence. Now, as I've said in this whole book of Leviticus, the whole book is about Jesus. To which you're saying, I don't see a lot of Jesus in there. Well, he is the light of the world. But do you know what the mechanism is or what it's called when you compress olives? What is the place that you would press olives called? Does anyone know? An olive press is called a Gethsemane. If you've never seen a Gethsemane, here's what it looks like. One of the largest Gethsemanes was on the bottom of a hill called the Mount of Olives. The reason it was called the Mount of Olives is because it was filled with olive trees. At the bottom of that is a garden. It's not called the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a garden next to a large Gethsemane. A Gethsemane is a large olive press. It's been turned into a church now, so they don't even take you there. They show you the garden. It's about the Gethsemane. Jesus brought his disciples into a Gethsemane, an olive press. And what you would do in an olive press is you would, these little bags right here, you put your olives in the bags, and you stack them up. Then you have this gigantic telephone pole that gets put on top of it with these gigantic boulder weights that you crank up using those wooden cranks. And the weight of the Gethsemane, the weight of this beam, compresses and crushes the olives. And at the bottom, you'll see a little chute. 
where the olive oil comes out. And you would capture the first purest of the crushed olive oils, and that was the very virgin oil, the best oil. And Jesus brought his disciples to this place the night before he would be killed, and he said, My life will be poured out for you. I am the light of the world, and I have come to this world to be crushed for you. To be crushed that you would know that God is with you. I came to history so that you would know God's not watching from a distance. He wants to get involved in your life. And the disciples like, yeah, 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 yeah. what are you talking about? When you, when's the kingdom coming? When, when, when are we all going to be the ambassadors of the new reign? When, when are you going to put us in charge? And Jesus said, no, no, no. My kingdom comes in a different way. I get crushed for my enemies. Did you know the Bible is the only story where the hero dies for the villain? He gets crushed. And when you realize what happened in that garden and on that cross is that Jesus took the wrath of God, the anger of God, the righteous anger of God, poured out on on impatience, poured out on injustice, poured out on everything we did wrong. The, The cup we should have drank of God's wrath, his righteous impartial judgment, Jesus drank that for us. Which is why he says in the garden, take this cup from me, the cup of his wrath. He drank that for us. And the reason we need daily reminders of the ultimate lamp of Jesus is because when you and I realize what he drank for us, then all of a sudden how justified we feel about our anger toward our our friend, our business partner, our son or daughter who's being so ridiculous, or our, our husband who's just so insensitive, or our wife who just seems like she's going crazy, and we feel so justified in our anger, we need daily reminders that God is slow to anger, great in mercy toward us. And that tempers how we express anger when we realize we've experienced mercy at a Gethsemane. But not only do we need daily reminders, we need weekly reminders. And so the weekly reminders came in the form of the showbread. And you shall take fine flour and bake twelve cakes in it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake, and you shall set them in two rows, six in each row, on the pure gold table before the Lord. Now, there would be, again, we've learned we give God our very best. When it came to tithing and offerings, you gave the storehouse, the temple, God's best. Fine flour took much effort to make fine flour in that day. This was a very cumbersome process. But you wanted to give God your best because he gave his best to you. You would make that into 12 of the showbread. I have two here. Imagine this being six and this being six. But they were stacked in two piles. God was very specific. He wanted this to remind you of the 12 tribes of Israel. As you'll see in a moment, this was to happen every Sabbath, a new dose of bread. Because they need a weekly reminder that God was faithful to his promises. One of the reasons we gather together weekly to study the Bible is we need a weekly reminder of God's presence. He keeps his promises. God is faithful even when we're faithless. God is still faithful even when we can't see him. God is faithful even when we're doubting him. It was a daily reminder that God is a covenant-keeping God in the covenant of Israel. And this bread was a reminder of that. In fact, it calls it a memorial which is a memorial, a reminder. And you know what was poured onto the bread? Pure frankincense. Huh. 
Where have I heard that before? Where would the ultimate bread come? Where does one find bread anyway, except you find bread in a bakery, a house of bread? So when God sends the ultimate bread to earth, where do you think God had the bread of life born? Well, if your name is Beth, you know the word Beth means house of. Lehem means bread. Beth Lehem, the house of bread, a bakery. God sent the ultimate show bread to be born in a place called Bethlehem, the house of bread, is where the ultimate bread of life was born. He is the ultimate expression of the bread and the covenant-keeping God we need. He goes on. He says, This shall be a memorial, a reminder that God is faithful to you. And every Sabbath, every week, every Saturday, you shall set it before the Lord continually. A continual weekly reminder you need of God's presence. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, the priests. They shall eat it in a holy place. Eat the sacred meal, a reminder of God's presence. It will be most holy to him. And this will be taken from the offerings of individual uh, gatherers of children of Israel giving their offerings, percentages of their income, to the gathering place. And we need that. We need weekly reminders of community as we all come together and weekly reminders of generosity. Boy, there are certain moments. I had a moment, I guess a couple months ago, I was really angry. And and I think pretty justified, but that's how we all feel when we're angry. Uh, But I think the circumstance did call for it. And I was trying to, to handle my anger. And I was praying. I said, God, I just really need a word from you on how to process this. I was praying. I really need a numa word of God. That's where God speaks to you in a specific situation. And this doesn't always happen. Sometimes God will give me a specific verse to turn to. Sometimes it's me inventing something and God speaking to me. What is it? Mark 5. Judas went and hanged himself. Go and do the same. All right, that must not be God. Um, but in this case, I just felt like God was speaking to me, and, and I felt like he was, he was nudging me to read Psalms 4. I was reading through Psalms 4, not knowing much of what was in it. <clears throat> and I get to Psalms 4.4, 4, and it says, be angry. And the Hebrew next to it says, be irritated. I'm like, well, thank you, God. You give me some permission to be angry and to be irritated. And there's freedom. Anger is not always wrong. And even if it is wrong, you're feeling it. God says, it's healthy to be angry and be irritated. But while you're irritated and angry, do not sin. Don't express it or handle it in a sinful or inappropriate way. I'm like, okay. He keeps going on. He says, so be mindful of what you're meditating on your bed. I have to be laying in bed thinking about this. And so I'm like, okay, I need to think about what I'm thinking about. What what am I ruminating on or meditating on? And then it said, and be silent. Don't try and take things into your own hands. Be silent and watch how I'm going to work. And I can tell you, it's been powerful to see in that circumstance how God has worked far beyond my imagination. But in that moment, what helped me is, one, realizing anger and irritation isn't wrong. Two, it can be used for bad stuff. Be careful how it's expressed. And three, one of the ways we deal with that is think about what you're meditating on. I don't have to put up with this. I shouldn't have to do this. I can't believe they did that. That's what we meditate on that God's asking us to look at. And we need to be reminded that God's present. He is the one who keeps accounts. In 1 Peter it says, Jesus, when he was reviled, did not revile in return, but instead entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. God reminded, Jesus reminded himself of God's presence while he was on the cross. 
which is why he was able to not extend inappropriate wrath, but rather forgiveness. Powerful. So we need daily reminders of God's presence. We need weekly reminders of God's presence. But now we get into a very tough part of this chapter. I can tell you, this is going to be hard to figure out. And I'm going to call this discipline. We need periodic reminders that God is holy. And right in the middle of this beautiful expression of God's presence is a piece of case law. Why is it here? And I think it's here because God is going to talk about what's important in your life. It's important to revere God as judge rather than you being judge. And it's also going to be very important for us to recognize the value of human life. He's going to get into that. But it's going to be a moment of discipline where God says, I want you to to remember that though I am merciful and though I am loving and though I am patient, don't mistake that as my holiness has been lowered. And so throughout the Bible, there's these moments where God reaffirms the boundary, reaffirms his holiness so that you don't bring him down to your level. And this is one of those difficult examples. Now, the son of an Israelite woman, and notice it says son, that doesn't mean it's a child. So don't think 12-year-old, think 30, 50-year-old. The son of an Israelite woman, whose father was an Egyptian, went out from the children of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought each other in the camp. So we got this battle between two guys beating each other up. It's all like the fight last night. And the Israelite woman's son, as they're fighting, blasphemed the name of the Lord. He uses God's name in vain, and he curses in the middle of the fight. So, oh, that's a big deal. That's God's top ten list, using his name in vain. So they brought him before Moses, and his mother's name was Shemimimeth, the daughter of Debri, the tribe of Dan. I searched, I have no idea why that's there. Then they put him in custody, so he's been locked up. That the mind of the Lord might be shown to them. What do we do with somebody who's used your name in vain? And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take outside the camp him who has cursed, and let all who heard him, so they need eyewitness evidence to support this really happened, put hands on his head and let the congregation stone him. Then you shall speak to the children of Israel and say, Here's the lesson we're supposed to learn here. Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. And whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him. And the stranger as well as him who was born in the land, when he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. I told you it would be difficult. And I'm going to tell you, my explanation will not solve this. I can only get you about halfway there. But I want to try and get you halfway there. Number one, Remember that the reason God takes the use of his name in vain so severely is because it's on his top ten list. So it's in the Ten Commandments. Two, this is not some child, the word son, uh, actually very much is an adult who's in a fist fight here. So don't think child, think an accountable adult. Three, remember as I talked about six or seven weeks ago, the book of Leviticus is a, like a homeowner association. You willingly entered the contract knowing the blessings and curses. So it's not like they went around to the Amorites or the Egyptians and said, hey, you're cursing our God, we're going to kill you. This was a willing contract entered by the people of Israel knowing we're going to keep these commandments and knowing the consequences of that. So in one sense, they knew what they were getting into. And the very bedrock, and this is the fourth point, the very bedrock of God's law is rests on the cornerstone that is him and reverence for his name. 
And so God is sort of applying here that if you knock down the foundation that everything else is built on, we've got to show how severe this is and have these periodic reminders of the holiness of my name and the holiness of my character. I told you I would only get you halfway there. Now, there's one modern example in American history that helps maybe a little. The year is 1811, and this is the New York Supreme Court Chief Justice James Kent in The People vs. Ruggles. So it's 1811. He finds a man for using God's name in vain. You're like, really? In America? Yeah. The name and reverence for God was so, so revered in American history that in 1811, he fined a man $500 for swearing and using God's name in vain. And here's his explanation for why he put such a severe penalty on somebody using God's name in vain. He says this, Christianity was parcel of the law. And to cast insulting reproaches upon it tended to weaken the foundation of moral obligation and the effectiveness of oaths. To which us non-lawyers go, what? Here's what he's saying. Our whole judicial system is based on you swearing on a Bible and saying and giving an oath that you're going to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And that oath is sacred and the very foundation or cornerstone of our judicial system. When somebody swears and takes God's name in vain, it is actually taking away from the effectiveness of all other people's oaths, saying the oath to God doesn't mean anything because the name of God doesn't mean anything. I told you I would get you halfway there. But I think it's helpful to understand why God gives this periodic reminder of his holiness. But you still might say, seems unfair, seems inappropriate. And reminder, the ultimate fulfillment of this is that you and I use God's name constantly in vain. We use our whole bodies made in his image in vain. And that's why Jesus died and had to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he allowed himself to take on our reproach so that we don't have to live under the law. But you still might look at the passage like I do and say, God, don't like it, don't understand it, don't really think you did the right thing here. And if you feel that way, you're normal. If you feel that way, you're in good company because King David felt the same way. In the book of Samuel, another one of those periodic reminders of God's holiness, they're bringing the Ark of the Covenant down. And God made very clear that only the priests were holy enough to carry the the Ark. As they're carrying it, they begin to stumble with the ark. And a man named Uzzah, a good godly man, decides to help not let the ark fall over. And he reaches to, to, to keep it from falling over and breaking. And God strikes him down dead. A periodic reminder of God's holiness. David is so aghast by this that he becomes angry at God. King David, man after God's own heart. Because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah... And he called this place Perez Uzzah to this day. And he sends the ark off. He's scared. Wow, this God we serve is holy. And God so blesses the different cities he sends it to that David eventually invites the, the ark back to Jerusalem. Happens in the New Testament as well. So post-Jesus, post-resurrection, Ananias and Sapphira pretend to sell all of their, their land. They pretend to give all that to the church, but they hold some back. And Peter doesn't say you had to give it all to the church. He says, when you owned the land, it was yours to manage how you think God would manage it. And when you sold it, you had the money. It was your money to do what you wanted. The issue was, you tried to use your money 
to get popularity. I want to be like Barnabas, known as the son of encouragement, known of being more generous than I am. You have not lied to men, but to God, he says. And Ananias and Sapphira are knocked down dead in the book of Acts for lying to the Holy Spirit. What's the application to anger? The only thing I, I can sort of deduce from that is that there are certain moments where when you're angry, it's justified. Somebody took advantage of you. Somebody pushed the line. Somebody pushed your boundaries. Somebody kept asking you to do something, and you're angry, and there's times you need to, like God's doing periodically here, reset the stage. You know what? The reason I'm angry is you keep asking me to do stuff without my permission. I've said no, and you keep making me do it. And so reestablishing the boundaries of, no, this is what we talked about. No, this is what's appropriate. No, this is not good behavior. It's almost like God is, is stepping in and saying, there's certain points at which I need to remind you where the lines are, remind you where the standards are, remind you what is right and what is wrong. And that's why I call this a discipline. The periodic reminders we need of what is right and what is wrong, what is inappropriate and what is appropriate that God does here. Then he moves into a fourth passage, which actually is a, is a pretty clear transition from this, where he moves into this idea of what I'm going to call an idiom. And this is where we're going to try and explain the most difficult, uh, misinterpreted verse of the Bible. So the transition from this reverence for God's name is a reverence for life. He says, now, whoever takes a human life shall be put to death. Which brings up capital punishment. Now, Why? Here's why he says that human life is so valuable, if you put it on a scale, in order to, and he's talking to a judicial system here, the judges of the system need to evaluate life properly. And so when somebody takes a human life, and there'll be exceptions to Deuteronomy, not involuntary, not accidental, not while protecting some other life, not related to the ethics of war. So God has very clear parameters. When you're talking about unjustified um, homicide... The only thing you can put on the other side that would justify or show the weight of the value of that life would be somebody to give their life. Because something eternal died, something eternal must pay. If you said, well, every time a human dies, you have to pay $100,000, that immediately says that human life's only worth $100,000. If you say it's 20 years, then a human life's only worth 20 years. So the moral justification for this is actually pretty solid, which is capital punishment is philosophically supported by something eternally in value must be punished with something eternally in value. Now, there are a lot of Christians who disagree with the expression of capital punishment because they would say, and I think I'm empathetic toward the position, that those who are poor have a tendency to be killed more often than those who have means. And they would say capital punishment, philosophically it makes sense, but in actually its expression, I'm not sure that the poor have the same access to justice. This is where Christians can disagree on this, but the main point here is that capital punishment was to show the value of life. Because anything else you made a punishment would devalue life. He then transitions that from showing that animals are different. But the principle is still the same. Human life will be put to death, but if you kill an animal, you don't die. But something of equal value has to be restored. If you kill somebody's goat, you need to make it good. What? Animal for animal. You killed a goat, you give a goat. You take a cow, you give a cow. And here's going to come this idiom or this principle. If a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, as he has caused. Now, nowhere in the Old Testament or New Testament 
Do you ever see judicial systems under Moses or anyone else going, hey, you poke somebody's eye out, here's, an, here's a, a hammer, go poke their eye out. You don't see that ever happening. So whatever this means, you don't see any examples of violence inducing violence. Keep in mind the Jewish community was very visual in how they describe things or explain things. So I believe this phrase, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, is an idiom. The equivalent today would be, the punishment should fit the crime. That was the principle. So, in speaking to a judiciary, they're saying, when something bad happens, the proper punishment, animal for animal, tooth for tooth, needs to be equal in representation. The punishment needs to fit the crime. When somebody knocks out your tooth, as you put justice in place, a tooth doesn't involve teeth. So I don't think it was actually prescribing, because we don't see it anywhere in the Bible, actually knocking people's teeth out. I think it was the equivalent of the Jewish way of saying the punishment should fit the crime. One more thought on that. Before you teach people to love, you first need to limit violence. And I want to propose to you that this phrase and this principle is designed to limit violence. Limit violence? Eye for an eye doesn't sound very violence-limiting. Stay with me, I'm going to try and convince you. Here's what happened mostly in history. You can see even today. Violence always escalates. I come over to your village and I steal your sheep. You get back at me by coming into my village and you steal two of my sheep. I get mad at you and I escalate. I come over and take your cow, your bull maybe. I take your bull and I take it over to my place. You come over and you take my whole herd. I get mad that you took my whole herd, so I go over and I kill your son. You're mad that I killed your son, so you come and kill my family. I get the chiefs together. We don't just kill the family. We go and kill your whole village. And violence escalates. Before you teach those people to love each other, you first must limit the violence and keep it from escalating. And this principle, eye for an eye, was to say, if somebody takes your sheep, and it wasn't personal ethics, by the way. It was to go to the judiciary and have the judiciary evaluate. They took my sheep. They owe me a sheep. This happened a lot in the court. It was very helpful because it was like the ancient equivalent of tort reform. Because when you got vengeful or angry in a, in a lawsuit, it kept you from wanting more penalty than you deserved. It was a way of keeping vengeance from occurring, from bitterness from coming into the person in the lawsuit, and to make sure the judiciary made sure the penalty met the crime. By doing that, it actually limited violence. It was a whole new way of thinking about retribution. A whole new way of thinking about justice. It said it's appropriate to seek justice, but you also need to weigh the difference between justice and vengeance. So the, the, the punishment needs to fit the crime, is what he's describing here. Which is why Jesus can show up and say, what God put in place in Leviticus was designed to limit violence... And once we limit it, let's go to the next stage. We've limited violence, but that's not the end game. Let's now move to loving each other. Because what happened is the Pharisees, instead of understanding Leviticus properly, they went, you know what? God's his eye for an eye. They used it as a support of personal vengeance and vendetta. You know, you poke my out, I poke your out. You punch me in the face, I punch you in the face. So Jesus shows up and says, now you've heard said an eye for an eye. Which comes out of the Bible. And tooth for tooth. But I tell you that instead of using that to limit violence and move you toward love, 
you reinterpreted the application of that to make it endorse violence. And that's not what God wants. And then God goes on to say, there's an even better way to love your enemy, to care for your enemy. But still, it sits just in line with the other commandments that protecting yourself is still supported. Um, the ethics of war, the ethics of defending somebody who's innocent, so I kill you because you were trying to kill somebody innocent. All those things would still be in play as ethical decisions that can be made. And it's also ethical to go to court. Paul goes to court. He takes people to, to Caesar. It's okay for Christians to sue people, but when you're suing people, you need to wrestle with the justice versus vengeance. And so this principle helps us, which is why I call this idiom a permanent reminder not to avenge. Anger and vengeance can come in because people do such mean things to each other. People rob companies. People say terrible things about their parents, terrible things about their kids. People betray you. And in those moments, you're going to get angry. And anger is going to be justified. But you need to pursue the court of law in a just way, as it supports, while not allowing it to turn to vengeance, which always makes those divorce cases even worse, always makes those lawsuits even worse when vengeance gets mixed in. So four things. Number one, we had daily reminders of God's presence. The showbread, weekly reminders of God's presence and generosity. We had periodic reminders of God's holiness. And we have permanent reminders not to avenge. See, we can learn to hold our temper when we remember who God is, that he is with us. He's been gracious to us. Remember the lamp? How God took anger on our behalf. So we want to be as merciful to others as he's been to us. Remember the showbread, a reminder that God is faithful and keeps his promises, that we want to be people who keep our promises because we serve a promise-keeping God? We do need periodic reminders of of boundaries, of, of discipline, of what's right and what's wrong, and it's okay to set those boundaries periodically. And lastly, we need a permanent reminder, God. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. It's not for you and I. One of the most powerful examples I ever saw of this was when I met Joel Sonnenberg. Joel came to our church about 10 years ago when we were at Cincinnati Country Day School. Joel was two years old, sitting in the back of his car, in his car seat, at a toll booth, when Dort, the man driving the 18-wheeler, smashed in and through his car, not because he was sleeping, not out of negligence, because he was trying to kill his girlfriend in the car in front of him. The car burst into flames, and this poor two-year-old was infused into his car seat on fire. They drug him out, not thinking he would live. And after hundreds of surgeries, he survived. Dort skipped bail and ran to Canada for over a decade. They didn't know what happened to him. Meanwhile, poor Joel, as a kid, would turn to his parents and say, Mom, Dad, when will my skin be smooth again? Just can't imagine parenting your kids through that. Joel spoke about how his parents trained him to deal with the looks he would get. I remember taking my kids to meet him 10 years ago uh, for dinner that day, and it was kind of weird for them. Kind of weird for me, quite frankly. But oh my goodness, his heart and his story. They caught Dort about 15 years later, and they brought him to justice. 
When he was there, the family came in, having gone through all the pain you can only imagine that would come through in going through this circumstance. And Dort turned to the family and said, well, I'm sorry for, for what I did to your family. And Joel's father stepped up to the microphone and said, if you apologize, we will forgive because we're commanded to by God. But we will not forget. We are here today to make sure you get justice for what you've done. For you took my bouncing baby boy and turned him into a lump of coal that day. And God has used the last 15 years to turn him into a beautiful diamond. So we forgive you because justice is the Lord's. But we also entrust the judicial system to give you eye for an eye. The just consequence to your crime. We live in a world today with hurricanes, escalating violence, unintentional pain. And if ever we needed prayer and a reminder of a God of grace and a God of justice and the unique way of putting it together, it's now. So let me pray for us and let me pray for our world. Father, we know there's a lot of people in pain in our society. And the line between justice and vengeance is just so thin. May we be people who pursue justice wholeheartedly and yet resist vengeance passionately. We ask for those who are hurting in our city, ask for those who are hurting in our country, God, that we would have revival in, in seeking you and looking in the mirror and being reminded of what our country needs more than anything, what our family needs more than anything, what our heart needs more than anything is your presence here and now. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here today.